Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Haggai. You can pay, find that on page 791 in the Bibles provided for you. We're studying these small prophets, the end of the Old Testament, and we're studying them in chronological order. We started looking at Haggai last week. And the last book we studied was Habakkuk. Habakkuk uh, was told by the Lord that, that uh, Babylon would come and take Judah into captivity because they were not putting the Lord first in their lives, because he was not central in their lives, and he wouldn't listen to the prophets. He said, I'm going to take them away into exile, into 70 years, and I'm going to discipline them into obedience. Well, now Haggai is writing about 100 years later. They've served their time. They've done their exile in, in Babylon. Seventy years have passed, and, and uh, a new kingdom is on the scene. Persia has, has defeated Babylon. They're the main power in the world. And uh, these Persians are far different from the Babylonians, at least in regard to freeing Judah to return to their home. They not only encouraged some of them to go back, they gave them money to do so. They gave them money by which, with which to rebuild their temple. And so 50,000 volunteers left Babylon and went to, back to Jerusalem and they started building, rebuilding the temple and the walls. They had a lot of money. It's cleared off of the cleared off the rubble, but the Samaritans came along. They were the half siblings of of uh, the Judah, and they came down from the north. And they offered to help build the temple for racial reasons. Primarily, they decided not to allow them to do it. It made the Samaritans mad. They opposed them. It hurt the Judahites' feelings, and they quit building. They quit building the temple. Instead, they started building their own houses started building their own economy. They decorated their houses with paneling. They were successful people. They could even uh, make their houses elaborate. All the while, they neglected the temple, the church in the center of their city. It lay in ruins. So God sends another prophet, Haggai, 20 years later. He calls them to put the church back in the center of their city. I told you that these prophets are nosy people. They get into our business. And here Haggai didn't even have the courtesy to wait until stewardship month, stewardship Sunday. He starts talking to us about giving to the church. He said last week, you need to go back and you need to rebuild that church in the center of your city. You need to make gathering and giving the central act of your lives. That's what Haggai calls us to do too. Yes, Christ is the fulfillment of the temple. The temple was pointing forward to Christ, the incarnation of Christ. But Christ didn't do away with gathered worship. In fact, he multiplies gathered worship by bringing temples or church buildings closer to people. And as we gather, we remember the incarnated Christ. Haggai calls us to reorder our lives, to put the church back at the center. Let me read that to you, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, 
Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, that's the king of Persia, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these things, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then consider from this day onward. Restore before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord. How did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider this day onward from the 24th day of the ninth month. Since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down every one of by the sword of his brother. And on that day declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you. O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel declares the Lord and make you like a signet ring for I have chosen you declares the Lord of hosts. Brothers and sisters, grass withers and the flower fades The word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Open our eyes, O Lord, to see our world as you have constructed it. Open our eyes to see our hearts 
and to bring them fully open before you. Jesus, please send your Holy Spirit to grant us repentance, an ability to reorder our lives in a way that makes you clearly and obviously the center of our lives, that you might bless us for your world's sake and for your name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said together, amen. Several years ago, my wife's car had a problem with it. It was making a noise. And uh, I did like every responsible husband. I said, I don't hear anything. But it got louder and louder. I couldn't ignore it any longer. We took it to the shop and we took the mechanic with us. He listened to it. He said, I hear the noise. Let's try to find it. And we tried all kinds of things. We checked the exhaust system. That didn't work. We checked the... We checked the uh, tires, changed the tires. That didn't work. We balanced the wheels. That didn't work. And so then with the noise getting louder and louder, more obnoxious, we did what every responsible set of parents do. We gave the car to one of our children. (laughs) She turned up the radio, drowned the noise, and she was happy as a lark for a while. But then the car got bumpier. New tires on it. Wheels are balanced. We couldn't figure it out. Finally, took it back to the shop. They said, here's the problem. We finally diagnosed the problem. It's a wheel bearing. A wheel bearing is a, a small collar that, uh, that goes on the axle. The, the hub goes on the bearing. Sometimes a rotor goes on the hub or the, uh, before the, the, uh, the hub and the for the brakes and then the wheel goes on the hub and then the tire goes on the wheel. And when the wheel bearing goes, the wheels on the bus don't go round and round. They go oblong or they wobble. Now it still had a center by physics. It has to have a center, but the center was not true. It had a center, but the center was not true. And because the center was not true, everything else was a bit off. It was askew. If you're a conscious human being, you have a center. There's something that is central in your life. It's an organizing principle of your life. It's a drive of your life. It's something that gets you up in the morning. It's your goals. It's something that inspires you. You have a center. But your center may not be true. And if your center is not true, everything else in your life will be askew. Even if you feel like everything else in your life is fine. That's an especially frightening place to be. But you don't realize the center of your life is not true. And Haggai says very, very plainly, as the rest of the Bible does, at the center of your life, must be the gathering and giving to your church. It could be startling to some people. I didn't know the Bible was that literal. I thought we did away with those old things in the Old Testament, the temple and so forth. But do you ever see the New Testament because Jesus has come, quit gathering and quit giving? Do you see the history of the church from the apostles into the present? Churches that are saying, you know, we've moved beyond that. We're too mature to gather anymore. Too mature to put the church in the center of our life. No, gathering and giving is still the central organizing principle of the church. In fact, the Bible says, the New Testament says, Paul says in Ephesians 3, God made this whole world so that through the church, 
the manifold wisdom of God might be revealed and made known not just in the earth, but to all the principalities and powers. This is the very order of creation that he's made the church the central agency of redemption in the world. He's ordered the whole of history. Every week is ordered in this way. The Sunday is the first day of the week. And the first day of the week is to be given in worship and giving at the local church level. When that is off, when that center is no longer true, everything else in your life will be slightly askew. These people found that hard to believe. In fact, they found it so hard to believe they ignored it for 20 some years. Even though God had told them, I'm bringing you out of Egypt so that you might worship. Even though they said in Babylon, oh, if we can only worship again. And even though they went back with money and, a, and a blueprints to rebuild the temple, soon they forgot it. And the center of their lives, literally in their city, was, was empty. And they made their homes and their economy and their own activities central. Everything suffered. So God brought depression on them. Or God allowed depression to fall on them. I don't mean just uh, emotional depression, but I mean life depression. Everything in their lives began to suffer. You see it in verses 15 and following. You had certain things. They're less satisfactory to you. Mildew, rot, corrupt characterize your work. You work and work and work and you don't seem to get anywhere. What is the first step then? The first step to being restored to this place of obedience as Sarah was talking about earlier is a proper diagnosis which comes in verses 10 and following. The diagnosis of what the true reason is. The reason that everything is suffering in their economy, in their lives, in their emotions, because they're not bearing eternally significant fruit is because they have neglected the gathering and giving to their church and making that priority first. Diagnosis is critical. And I I will remember uh, some years ago when we were coming out of covid Still, people were getting COVID. I was to have lunch with a doctor, and he was a little bit late to the lunch. And he came in, he was all flustered, he frustrated, red in the face. And he said, Sometimes I wonder why I went to medical school and, don't, and didn't just use Google. He'd just come from meeting with a frustrating patient. The patient had come in, and he said, I'm having trouble breathing. I've got a splitting headache. I've, I've got congestion. I've got body aches and so forth. I have a sinus infection. Would you please give me antibiotic? Well, so do you mind, he said, since I'm a doctor, do you mind if I do a little examination? Do if, I, if I do some testing, maybe I'll run a COVID test just to make sure. I'm sure you're right. I'm sure it's a uh, sinus infection. You've read it online and uh, you must be right. But let's just do the test anyway. He ran the test, COVID test. It was flaming. It was obviously uh, COVID. He said, hey, you know, I have trouble diagnosing some things. Sometimes it takes a little bit of artistic instinct. But here there's, we have some certain objective tests. Here are the results. And the patient said, uh, no, I don't have COVID. Uh, I, I, I feel like I have a sinus infection. 
I know my body pretty well. And this is what I feel like when I have it. He said, here are the results. I know what the results are, but I think COVID's overrated. I have a sinus infection. These people living under God's law had heard for years, look, the rest of your life is going to suffer if you don't make worship the first organizing principle of your life in every week. Now it's suffering. And you're looking for every other explanation. We must not have proper ventilation. That's why things are mildewing. It must be the economy. That's why things are not productive. I must not be working hard enough. That's why I work seven days a week and I don't get anywhere. It, it has to be any number of things, but one thing that it can't be, can't be related. My economy, my emotional health, my relationships, my, the way I'm satisfied. With it. If, it may be any number of other things, but it can't be that I'm not making gathering and giving to my church the priority. First starts with diagnosis. And when the diagnosis is accurate, then this is what you do. You repent. Now, now the word for repentance that, or the phrase that, that Haggai uses to communicate repentance is repeated four to five times in this book, twice in chapter one, three times in, in chapter two. It's consider your ways. Consider your ways. Consider. You have these problems. So instead of blaming everybody else or all the circumstances, consider your ways. And when you consider your ways, you'll consider, you'll realize you need to rearrange your ways because they're not in conformity to God's priorities. Consider your ways. Now notice what they, and they do that. They do that. They consider their ways. They reorganize their lives. They reorganize their priorities and they go back to rebuilding their church and reinstituting worship at the center of their city. But God has to do some severe testing. He has to bring severe mercies into their lives. He really has to bring them to the end of themselves and let them hit bottom before they realize that. And that may be happening to you. And you say, why is God doing this to me? Instead of blaming God, bless God that he loves you too much to let you go on continuing to run in the wrong direction. I heard a, a, a read a, 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 an insane, um, episode of This American Life. It comes from about 20 years ago. And it was a series of vignettes on people who, who, uh, who discovered who they were by suffering. Not a Christian program. But there was one vignette. This woman was telling about a time in her, in her family's life. She was about 12 years old. Her father was a very successful lawyer. She said, we had two Porsches in our, in our uh, uh, garage. And we had a huge house. And we went on elaborate vacations. He was very successful. One day he brought us into the living room. And he said, I have something I need to tell you. I've been stealing money. Our lives are about to change. He'd been given a responsibility for a trust for a special needs child. And he had managed that trust uh, for a long time. And then money got tight. And those payments started coming due. He started writing himself checks from the trust. So he confessed it. 
He was disbarred. They took everything. Within a matter of weeks, he was a janitor in a Baptist church. His wife was working a couple of jobs too. But she said, you know what? My dad was instantly better. He was a better person. He was happy. He chewed gum, which he didn't do before. He wasn't such a bad person. I'll spare you what she actually called him. Mom, her transformation was amazing. She basically just had to deep need in herself to recognize need and suffering in other people. She went downtown, packed some bag lunches. She never packed for me and took them to some homeless people living under the bridge. She went on a mission trip to Rwanda. Life was better, though it was harder. Not Christians. Maybe they were. Didn't mention the church, but they do illustrate that sometimes God has to take us to the end of ourselves to get our priorities rearranged. To put what is most important back in the center. Notice how it happens here. They listen. They repent. They start rebuilding. God says, this is what you are to do. Okay, you've repented. Go back to work. Notice that, uh, that God doesn't say what I would be tempted to say. That, that, look, I've been trying to warn you about this for decades. And, and now just because you've hit the bottom you, and, and life's difficult, now you're finally turning to me. I told you so. God never says that. Though it took them decades to wander from the Lord, though it took decades to slip in their priorities, it was instant restoration when they turned back to the Lord. When they considered their ways and they said, you're right, we're wrong. We're going to reorganize our life. What does God do? Welcome back. Now, go to work. And I'm sure you're going to be overwhelmed with the work. I'm sure you're going to be intimidated. But listen, be strong and courageous. Don't tremble or be afraid. I am with you. That's the way God is. Gracious God. It may have taken you weeks, months, maybe years, a lifetime to get to this place where your life is improperly prioritized. But today can be the change. Turn back. And when you're afraid, remember, he says, I will be with you. And look what he promises, that when we turn back to him and reorder our lives with him as the priority. He says in verse 19, I will bless you. Now, he says that on the, on the heels of these very material things. You have seed in the barn, vines, fig trees, pomegranates, olive trees, so forth. Apparently, there was some lack of productivity. There was a downturn in the economy, and they're getting, they're getting nervous. And he says, I'm going to bless you. Now, this is a, and it's an appropriate place to talk about the problem with prosperity, the prosperity gospel. But it's important to realize there are two forms of the prosperity gospel. There's one form of prosperity gospel we know about, we see about on TV, listen to it on the radio and so forth. And there's another form of prosperity gospel that is close to every one of us. 
One form of prosperity gospel says, if you're underprivileged, if you're poor, if you're having a rough time, then if you just do this formula, you do these things, you do this, these works, then God will make you prosperous. He'll give you money. He'll give you clothes. He'll give you car. He'll give you a house. He'll heal your body. He'll give you good parking places. Everything will be right. Now we say that's, that's bad stuff and it's harmful to many people. There's another form of prosperity gospel, and that is, I am prosperous, I have cars, I have a good job, our house, our home, our family is intact, we have good schools, we're safe. It must be because we're doing the right things. Oh yeah, we go to church too. And we, and in the Lord good. Consequently, here's the way we tend to watch the news. I've been guilty of saying the same thing about our crime situation in Memphis. I've been guilty of saying, I've never seen it this way before. But is it true that we have really never seen it this way before or we have chosen not to see it before? Because how have we watched the news before from all around the world? all around our country, even in our city. Oh, crime has happened down in that part of the, the city again. You know, if those people would just get their priorities in line, if they would just work hard, if they would just get their families together, if they would just do the right things, if they would just move to another place, then they would be safer. After all, the reason I'm living as prosperous as I do is because I've done the right things. And oh, yes, thank you, Jesus. When Haggai says, consider your ways, he's not talking to anybody, but each of us individually. Always. Consider your ways, pastor and people, and reorder your lives according to his priorities, and he will bless Not because you're doing the right things, but because this is the way he made your life to go, to live dependently on him, trusting him for seven days worth of provision for six days of labor, trusting him to provide all of your needs, though you give him a portion of your income, the first fruits, trusting him to give you all the time that you need to do your work, though you make the Lord's day a priority, morning and evening, and the nourishment of your soul and other discipleship events through the week. I will bless you. Not only does he say he'll bless you individually, he will make you, he will make you a part of a very dignified, eternally significant plan. He'll take you from depression to dignity. Notice how he says it. I'm going to shake the nations. I'm going to bring treasures into the house of the Lord. He's not talking about uh, uh, silver and gold. He's talking about souls. I'm going to do eternally significant work, including you in it. You get equipped here. You get nourished here. You go out there. You bless people. You bring them here. They get equipped and nourished and they go out and they go out farther and farther and farther even to the ends of the earth. 
One great way to heal depression of any kind is to start doing mission. Get involved in it here locally. Go on a foreign mission trip, a short-term mission trip. And let your eyes be open to what God is doing beyond your world and to other areas. And the dignity and the privilege of being a part of it, he says. When you put me first in your life, then I will. I will use you. That's why I sent Jesus. That's why Jesus died and rose again. That's why Jesus went to heaven, sent the Holy Spirit to make us witnesses into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. I will change the world through you. Oh, I'm not sure you say, I'm not sure I can, I'm not sure I'm up for all of that. Well, this is what he promises to you. Toward the end of the passage, he says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to strengthen you. He's speaking to, to the governor, uh, Zerubbabel, but he's by metonymy. He's talking about the whole of the nation. Zerubbabel is a as a descendant of David, as a forerunner of Christ, he's saying, through Christ, I'm going to make you like a signet ring on my hand. You're going to serve under the Lord Almighty. You're going to be carefully guarded. It's like a signet ring. You're going to be included in my plan. No, don't, don't run from the challenges of your city. Reorder your life. Gathering and giving to your church that this might be a mission station to make a change in this city. Do you know that our city is looking very much like a revival? You say, have you lost your mind? We all pray for revival, don't we? Oh, we need a revival. We need a revival. What do you think revivals were in the past? I've studied quite a, many, many, quite a number of them. I'll tell you, they weren't pleasant. When revivals came to a city, when they came to the New England colonies, when they came to the West, they were disruptive. They exposed people's motives. People thought the wrong people were getting saved. They, they, were, they, were, they, they made people's consciences burn. They upset systems. They rearranged society. They were disruptive because God was putting right order to things. And do you think the devil lays down his arms when revival comes to say, absolutely not. He fights all the more fiercely. Perhaps we're in the middle of revival. Perhaps the blessings that the Lord is pouring out on this church are evidence of revival. Do you know this church is growing? We're growing in membership. Our Bible studies have increased dramatically. Our youth ministries, senior high, junior high, increasing dramatically. Recreation ministry and drawing people from uh, 70, 80% of people who are unchurched, hearing the gospel, growing dramatically. Why would the Lord be doing that? Again, our involvement in domestic mission more than ever. 13 missionaries sent out, more and more involvement in, 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 in short term missions everywhere. We're growing while. People are wringing their hands. I've never seen it this bad before in Memphis. Be strong and courageous. Jesus says, I am with you. Quit wringing your hands. Looking for some human savior, some political savior. 
reorder your life around the real power that Jesus sets up. I heard, I read an essay some years ago about a woman who was in her church and she's walking in the halls one day and she heard another woman she knew was muttering under her breath, why is the church so expensive? This church is so expensive. She paused and said, "Uh, you know, the church is expensive, isn't it? Now that you think about it. Reminds me, she said at the time I, I said a similar thing about my children. And my little boy came home. I just bought him a new pair of shoes. He came home and said, I lost my shoes. And I just bought him, I, I just bought him a new pair of pants because his legs are growing so fast I can't keep him in clothes. It, it's costing me money, costing me to clothe him, costing me to put shoes on his feet. And it cost me to take him to school. It cost gas. Fundraisers at school, they're so expensive. And, and then food for this boy and milk, everything so expensive. And then my son died. And I realized that the expense of his life was nothing compared to the expense of suffering his death. So she said, which is better? The expense of your church, which is alive. Or would you rather have the expense of the death of your church? The expense it would be in your personal life. The expense it would be to your city. Ah, living, thriving things are expensive and they're worth it. They're worth putting them first at the first of our week, putting them first in all of our priorities. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for the church. Thank you for becoming the obvious head and king of our church and pouring your spirit out on the nations, gathering them in through churches all over the world. Make us good stewards, stewards of the time and the resources, the attitudes, the perspective, the movements of our lives. Make us good stewards that we might make your priorities our priorities and you might use us to make an impact, an eternally significant impact on our city, on our world, to the ends of the earth, even on our families. In Jesus' name we pray it. God's people said together, amen.